Well, church, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's open to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 5 is where we'll be in our time in God's Word today as we continue in this series called Reclaim. Looking at the story of how God reclaimed his people and the promised land after uh, the days of the Babylonian exile and uh, what had been the darkest time in, in Israel's history, and they had a lot of dark times. Uh, God began to shine a bright light once again and, and draw his people back to himself, and, and great revival really began to break out in the days of Ezra that we'll see uh, in the coming weeks. But uh, last week we talked about the fact that every time God is doing a great work, we have an enemy, an, enemy, an adversary, an opponent who uh, desires to bring a stop to that and will do everything that he can to do so. And we talked about the fact that, that this, this age-old enemy that we see all the way back to Genesis 3.15, uh, this, this old one serpent, this, this Satan that uh, stands against the people of God, that, that he really has the same old bag of tricks. There's nothing new in the devil's arsenal. It's the same old things recycled over and over again. And when we know the enemy's strategy, then we are able then to stand firm in the midst of difficult times when he is coming against us. So we talked about the enemy's strategy last week, but uh, this week I want us to look at the believer's victory that we're going to see demonstrated here beginning in chapter 5 and then rolling into chapter 6 in the next couple of weeks. We're going to see how God uh, began to reinvigorate his work there in the promised land in those days. So Ezra chapter 5, uh, we're going to look at just the first uh, five verses in our scripture reading, and then I'll flesh out the rest of the chapter as we get into the message this morning. So if you would stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together Ezra chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And the word of God says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And at the same time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the, eyes of the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report reached Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning and open our hearts father that we might willingly receive what your word has for us today lord above all things we need your word your holy spirit to apply it to us to teach us we need to be encouraged by your word at various times, we need to be chastised by your word. 
we need to be given our marching orders by your holy word. And Father, I pray that as you have given me this word to preach this morning, that you would help me to be faithful. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given me in study this week. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage your church in these days. These are difficult days, Father, in many ways, but we know they are also glorious days because we see you at work. Thank you for what you are doing in the lives of our young people right now. We pray, Father, that you would raise up a mighty generation that would, as these here in Ezra 5, would come back to the Word of God and walk in faithfulness greater than, they, than we have seen from their parents and grandparents, Father, that they might walk forward as strong soldiers of Christ, spurred on by Your Word and Your Spirit. And Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are the God who saves and you are the God who speaks. So again, Father, give us ears to hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we looked at last week the enemy's strategy in Ezra chapter 4. And today we're going to look at the believer's victory. Beginning here in Ezra 5, but really fleshing out more next week and in the week after as we'll look at uh, Ezra chapter 6. But here's my key theme, the key theme that I want us to look at today. And this is so straightforward, it's so basic to our belief system, but it's this, that those who trust in the word of the Lord will ultimately have great success. We live in a success oriented culture, even a culture that worships the idea of success. But so often the world's idea of success is so radically different from what we find in the word of God. And so we want to look at God's definition of success and see that God's definition of success is tied very intricately into his word and our reception of it and action upon it. And so as I was reading and preparing this message this week, I just began to see this constant theme. So many writers that I was reading this week in preparation were, were talking about this same kind of theme. And I want you to see some of their statements. That Warren Wearsby said, Church history shows that when God wants to arouse his people to do his will, he calls people to proclaim the word of God. We see that all throughout the scriptures, but we also see it all throughout church history. We look back to Martin Luther in the days of the Protestant Reformation, and we see God raising up a generation that would faithfully proclaim his word in a way that it had not been proclaimed in, in generations past. And God brought renewal and revival to his people through the preaching of his word. Robert Files said, No lasting work for God can be done without the Word of God being both its origin and its continuing inspiration. So again, this connection between the work of God and the Word of God. J.G. McConville said, There is always an effective answer to discouragement. 
This is good news. If you find yourself discouraged this morning, there's always an effective answer in the bold proclamation of the Word of God. Not simply as propositions to be assented to, but as a call to action. The Word of God always calls us to a place of action. And finally, Derek Kidner said, like every spiritual advance. Here's a common pattern in the working of God. Like every spiritual advance, we go back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, from Abraham's advance to the promised land to the missionary expansion that we see in the book of Acts. This venture began with a word from the Lord. And church, I want to remind us, why are we here this morning as Corinth Baptist Church, the people of God that gather here in this cornfield here in McQuady each week? Let us be reminded today and renewed in this that we are gathered here because of the Word of God. Because God spoke and has called us to Himself. And He has given his, us His Word to proclaim faithfully in our day. And so let's jump into the text this morning. First couple of verses there, what we see is the impetus of God's people. What is the motivation for who we are and what we do as the people of God, as His church, as those who've been rescued by His grace and saved for His glory and for our ultimate good? What, what is our motivation? Well, it's simply what we see in verse 1. It's the fact that God speaks. And we see in verse 1 that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And, and we remind ourselves that at this juncture, as of the end of chapter 4, the work of God, particularly the building of the temple or the rebuilding of the temple, had been on hold for nearly 20 years. God had called them to this particular work. He had, in, had empowered and equipped them for this work. He had given them King Cyrus's decree to enable them to do the work. But then opposition rose up. Times got tough, and the people of God were discouraged, and they were redirected toward other pursuits. They began to build their own houses rather than the, houses of the, the house of the Lord, which is what the prophet Haggai is all about. If you go and read Haggai, from the very beginning, Haggai is saying, what's the deal, guys? You've been focused on building your own homes, building your own kingdoms, but you've forgotten about the house of God. The work of the house of God needs to continue. In that picture of Haggai and Zechariah, God does an inter interesting thing with those two prophets. It's kind of like the old good cop, bad cop. Parents, have you ever played that game with your kids? Uh, my wife is more often than not the bad cop in our house because she has the, the voice they fear more than dad. Now, that's unusual in our home, but, but uh, that's just the way it works. And that works well in parenting a good cop, bad cop. And so God, as our Heavenly Father here in this section, He sends Haggai as the bad cop. Haggai is, is very much a, a prophet of, of conviction and a prophet that's calling the people out of their lethargy and out of their apathy. Hey, guys, get back to work, or God's going to bring judgment on you again, as he did in the exile. That's kind of the message of Haggai. He's the bad cop. 
But then Zechariah is the good cop, and his is a series of really encouraging and uplifting visions of what God is going to do as a result of the rebuilding of this temple, how the glory of God is going to come to the temple in an even greater way in the second temple than what he did in the first temple. And, of course, that's fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And Zechariah is foreshadowing that coming of the Lord to that second temple. But here's, here's the point. God's word always, and you can underline that three times and highlight it and make it bold, it always, always precedes God's work. If you today would desire to be a part of the work of God, and we'll talk more about what God is doing in these days here in a little bit, but if you would desire to be a part of the work of God, it must begin with the Word of God. These are our marching orders. You will not know what God has called you to be and to do if you are not in the Word of God. And as I've said so many times, just jumping into the Word of God for an hour on Sunday morning or even an extra hour on Wednesday night won't get it done. We have to become intimately acquainted with God through His Word. This is His way of helping us to know Him. This is His revelation of Himself. And so we come to know this Word so that we can know our God. and know who he has called us to be and what he has called us to do. And God's word always, always precedes God's work. Over and over again, in those Old Testament days, we see this phrase nearly over a hundred times in the ESV version that I preached from. You see this phrase, and the word of the Lord came to dot, dot, dot. So Genesis chapter 15, and the word of the Lord came to to Abraham. In 1 Samuel, we see, and the word of the Lord came to Nathan. In 2 Samuel, and the word of the Lord came to Solomon. And then we get into those prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and again and again and again, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and the word of the word, word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Over a hundred times we see it's the word of the Lord that precedes the work of the Lord. And God's work is always predicated upon His Word. It's the foundation. If we're going to do the work of God, it must be that we are building upon, as the New Testament says, the apostles and the prophets, which is a a primary reference to the Word of God. We must be doing what God has told us to do. So what that says to us again is this. We can't just do church any way we want to. We have to ask, what has God given us to do as His church? There are all kinds of things the church could be doing, but what we must be asking in these days, as we were were talking so much in these days about what's essential and non-essential, what we must continually be asking ourselves is, what are the things that God has given us to do as the church in His Word that that are absolutely essential? There's all kinds of things we could be doing, but what are the things that we must? be doing again we'll come back to some of those things in a moment but you see the way in which God speaks has shifted over the years God once spoke through prophets but not so much anymore he has now spoken to us in a very different way as the book of Hebrews lays out for us Hebrews chapter 1 
Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets again, and the word of the Lord came to. And there was always a man's name after that that was a prophet that God had raised up to extend his message to the people. That was the theme of the Old Testament. God sent prophets to proclaim his word. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his Son, There's a new strategy by which God is going to speak to his people by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. And that's why in the the gospel of John, he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was there in the beginning with God and the word, John 1.14, became flesh. And has dwelt among us. So no longer does God speak through a variety of prophets. And now he speaks through the one who has fulfilled all the prophecies. His son Jesus Christ. And so we consider these things. And we ask ourselves who are we listening to in these days. We are a people who believe God has spoken. And he continues to speak to his people. Again, primarily through his word and through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We must ask ourselves in these days, who are we listening to? What is the motivation for, by which we are doing the things that we're doing in these days? Are we being pastored by the word of God and by the word made flesh, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Or are we being pastored by the evening news? Are we being pastored by what's being put on Facebook or Instagram? Are we being pastored by common sense or the common notions of our day? Are we being pastored by our political party or our own personal ideologies? Or is the Word of God leading and directing us? So here's what I'm convinced of. The people in Ezra 5 would have never gotten back to the work of God if God hadn't sent his word to spur them on and get them out of the place of lethargy and apathy in which they were residing. The same is so true for us in this day. We we, we could look over the last several years and by and large the church here in America we could say has been largely asleep. Many would even say the church has, has been so asleep it's as if we're dead. And yet, God has sent us this recent pandemic and all the struggles that we're seeing right now. He has sent opposition, just as we see in Ezra chapter 4. But following that, what will come? Will come God's word that is beckoning us back, calling us back to the task, reminding us of who we are as the people of God. In many ways, Haggai and Zechariah, they don't say anything that's really new. They're just reminding God's people of what he's already said. And by the way, that's the job of this pastor as well. I don't stand before you week by week to bring you new ideas and notions. You don't need those from me. What you need is a regular reminder of what God has already said. You need to be reminded of the promises of God and of the practices of God, of who God is and what he has done for us and who we are and who he has called us to be and what he's called us to do. It's a mission of reminder. We come here each week for that. In the next section, verses 3 through 10, following the impetus of God's people, God's work being spurred on by God's word, we see then the inquisition of God's people. 
Again, opposition. We see it in chapter 4. We see it in chapter 5. We're going to see it through the rest of this book. There is regular opposition to the work of God because we live in a sin-broken world. We should expect that there's going to be opposition to the things that God wants to accomplish. Now, ultimately, the victory has already been won, and we rejoice in that, but that doesn't mean that there are not yet battles to be fought. And so how do we fight those battles? Well, first of all, we need to be able to know how to answer the questions that were asked here in these verses. You'll notice there were two questions, and they can be summarized this way. Two questions that were asked of the people that were beginning to rebuild the temple, spurred on by the Word of God, and they are these. Who are you, and who authorized you? By the way, those are great questions. Those are great questions for us to ask as the people of God, sitting where we're sitting this morning. If I were to ask you, who are you and who has authorized you to do what you do? To live how you live, to believe how you believe, and to act upon that belief, walking by faith. Who are you? We're going to come back to that question in a moment, but let's spend a little bit of time with the second question. Who authorized you? Who empowers you for the work of the Lord? It may seem obvious, but we notice that this question will come up again and again in the life of the church. We ought to know this, church. If Christ was questioned, so will this church be. Go to Matthew 21, and what do you find? Jesus is at the height of his ministry. He's come to Jerusalem. He's preparing for the cross. He's teaching and preaching in the temple. He is doing all kinds of wonderful things. And the religious authorities of his day, they come to him and they basically ask him, who do you think you are and who authorized you to do this? Who gave you the right to teach and to heal and to draw crowds unto yourself? See, they were jealous. They were jealous of the work that was happening in that day. And, and so they began to question it, as is so often the case. And so Jesus gives them a, a test of his own. Rather than just answering to them, he gives them a test of his own. And he says to them, okay, I'll tell you who's given me authority if you'll answer one question. Where did John the Baptist's baptism come from? Was that a baptism of men or a baptism from God? Now, in some ways, it was a little bit of a trick question for them because they realized, uh-oh, if we say John's baptism was just of men, we're going to tick off all the people that were baptized by him and have been following him all these years. But if we admit that it was from God, we're going to give up the power that we have because we've proclaimed to be God's representatives all these years. It was kind of a catch-22. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place, and so they decided not to answer. They just said, no, we're going to choose not to answer that question. And so Jesus says, well, I'm going to choose not to tell you by whose authority I'm doing these things. The question of authority is a hot-button issue in our day. Who is going to have authority in our upcoming election? Who is going to have authority in the racial tensions that we're experiencing? Who is going to have authority in the midst of this continuing pandemic? So often who has authority in your life is who you are listening to. Who is prescribing the actions that you will take? The question of authority is a huge question in this day. I wish we had more time to talk about it. 
But we need to recognize this morning that just as the Father gave to the Son authority over all things, that's what he said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father gives that authority to the Son. So then the Son has given to his church a certain matter of authority as well. Now, Matt's going to preach on Matthew 16 here in a few weeks, and so I don't want to ruin his sermon. We had some great conversations this week about what Jesus says in his first words about the church in Matthew 16. One of the issues there is the church is going to be given authority, the keys of the kingdom. What does a, a key implies authority? If I give you the keys to my car... Not that you would want it. It's kind of beaten up and battered. But if I give you the keys to my car, I'm giving you the authority to utilize it. And so when Jesus gives to the church the authority, the keys of the kingdom, he's giving us the authority to do some things on his behalf. And he says in Matthew 16, 18, that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So once again, church, we need, need not fear this pandemic. We need not fear the issues of racial reconciliation that are causing riots even just an hour from here. We, we, we need not fear these things because even death will not defeat the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, take that in for a moment. If we need not fear death itself, even the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Then if we're shrinking back in fear from the obstacles of our day, as we saw in Ezra 4 last week, then what needs to happen? Well, we need to hear the word of God that's beckoning us back, calling us back to a place of faithfulness. We need to hear a Haggai chastising us and saying, hey, get back to the work. You've been focused on your own kingdom for far too long. It's time to get back to building the kingdom of God. And we need to see Zechariah's visions as he's laying out for the people glorious things that were yet to come, showing them here's how the promises of God are going to be unveiled and, and going to play out in your day, but not not just in your day, in the days to come when the Son of God will walk the earth and He will be the one who will bring the glory of God to the temple. And it will be even greater than the glory that came in Solomon's day when the first temple was dedicated. And He's describing to the people what God is going to do. In the same way, I believe we're in a day when we need both chastisement and encouragement. We need to be called back to the work and we need a strong vision of what God has promised to do to spur us on. Psalm 33, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So church, I would just say to us, if we need not fear death, then what do we have to fear? I mean, look at the pathway of so many martyrs over the last 2,000 years. So many have been told, if you don't stop talking about this Jesus, if you don't stop proclaiming this gospel, we're going to kill you. And of course, we know the Apostle Paul's famous words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
That means we can live a life without fear. We can walk by faith even if we can't see how everything's going to play out because we know ultimately the victory is ours. And when we're walking and living according to the Word of God, that victory is assured. And on the flip side, when we are not living and walking according to the Word of God, we can be assured as well that we will not walk in that victory. So finally this morning, We've seen the impetus of God's people, the inquisition of God's people, and and finally, I love verses 11 through 17. They show us the identification of God's people. How often when we uh, are uh, making some kind of a transaction in our culture does somebody ask to see our, our driver's license, our ID? Show me your identification. I've heard that at least a couple of times even this week with things that I, I had to do out in the, in the public sphere. And, and what's happening here in verses 11 through 17, when they ask, are asked those questions, who are you and who authorized you to do this work? Now, I love their response because they're trying to take down names. I'm guessing if they had had license plates in those days, somebody would have been out in the parking lot of the temple writing down their license plates to see who showed up. They didn't have those, so they just asked them for their names, the identification of God's people. And look what they say about themselves, beginning in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11, they said this. This was their reply. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. And then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. And I'm thinking that the governors there just looked at him and said, we just wanted your names. But their identification meant so much more than their names. So let's look at it for a few minutes. First of all, verse 11 and 12, they said, We are servants of God who were sinners before God. Who authorized us to do this? Who authorizes us to meet together on Sunday morning? It's the God of heaven and earth. And I want you to see something, because if you go back to Ezra chapter 1, you'll remember that in in the decree that Cyrus made, he refers to him as the God of heaven. 
But no, here they're saying, no, he's not just the God of heaven. He's the God of heaven and earth. He has complete and utter authority. Why? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you take that and you put it together with Romans chapter 8, what do you find? That all creation is groaning, longing for the fulfillment, the redemption of all things that God is going to bring about. So all of creation is twice his. Once because he made it, but twice because he will redeem it. He's going to redeem all of it. This is his authority. And so why do we gather together on Sunday morning? Let's elevate our thoughts. Not just because we can, or not just because we should, but because of the decree of the king of all kings. He has called us together as the people of God. We must meet because the king says so. And ultimately, that's their response. Now, yes, they refer to the decree of Cyrus here. They, they talk about some of the earthly things that had happened, but they wanted those governors to understand from the very beginning that their identity and their authority was grounded in the reality of the one true and living God. We are his servants. But they also wanted him to understand that we sinned against him. Our fathers in the former generation sinned against God and even the generation before that and the generation before that there was a long series of generations where they were constantly breaking the law of God and God sent prophets to warn them generation after generation after generation many long long periods of warnings until finally in the days of Jeremiah God said it's enough it's enough there's been too much that's gone on the iniquity is full and now the wrath must come. And that's what resulted in the Babylonian exile. But you'll notice, as we saw last week, and as we'll even see again next week in these letters, the correspondence that was going on between Judah and, and the king, that, that you notice that, that, that what they thought was this. These governors were under the impression that the people were carried off into exile because they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. That's what they, that's what they thought. The reason Jerusalem was destroyed in the first place, remember last week they said it's a wicked and rebellious city, and they were convinced that the wickedness and the rebellion was against King Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he came in and destroyed Babylon, and yet you notice what the people of God said here. No, it wasn't about Nebuchadnezzar. He was just simply a tool in the hand of God. Our wickedness and our rebellion was ultimately against God himself. It's Psalm 51 when David says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. They recognized that their sin and their rebellion was against the holy God, the one true and living God. And they deserved the punishment they received. It's no different for us. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We're deserving of even more than exile because of our sin. And yet God in his grace has done something radically different. In verses 13 through 15, you see, we are saved, supplied, and sent out by God. And so we see in those verses that, first of all, they recognize, and they refer to Cyrus here. Because of the decree of Cyrus, we were called, allowed to go back and to rebuild this city and the temple that's at the very core of it. But they, they recognized here, they're really just pointing forward to the fact that, back to verse 11, it's God who caused these things to come about. 
It's God who long before Cyrus was even born named by name King Cyrus who was going to be his instrument for the release of his people and their return to the land and their reclaiming of the things of God in that day. But not only were they set free from the exile, but they were fully supplied. Remember what we saw in those first couple of chapters, that they didn't go back empty-handed, that they went back and, and God caused there to be an overabundance of supplies. Remember that $35 million love offering that we saw a couple of chapters ago that God caused to be raised up for, the, for this work? They were well supplied for the work of God. They were fully equipped what he desires for us as well and they were sent out by God on a mission they were sent out to do this work and finally this morning we're servants of God who were sinners before God we're saved supplied and sent out by God and we are sons of God on an assignment for God I want you to notice what he says there this is kind of a theme throughout these early chapters of Ezra. In verse 13, sorry, verse 16. Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, remember it's been nearly 20 years since the foundations were laid. From that time until now, it has been in building, which is had lain still for a long time, but then he says these words, notice, and it's not yet finished. There was an unfinished work. And church, let me just say this to us. We, too, have an unfinished work. We, we can't afford to rest on our laurels and, and rejoice in past victories. Yes, we need to remember those and be thankful for those but we have to recognize that we too have an unfinished work. Now we're going to see next week in chapter 6 how the temple does, uh, is completed. And yet even when the temple was completed, there was still an unfinished work. That's why God has to send Ezra to the people to, to finish the work that was given to them to do in those days. But as we continue to see today, we have an unfinished work. There's a continuing assignment for the people of God. And so the same one who said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of this age. Until the end of this church age, we have an unfinished work. There's still more to do. There are still more folks to reach with the gospel and there are still more disciples to be made. And that's the primary role of the church to glorify God in the making of disciples. That's why our hearts ought to be stirred by what's happening in the lives of our young people right now. Because it's part of the work that we've been given to do. It's why our hearts ought to be stirred as we think about lost neighbors and co-workers. Who are living without God, without hope in this sin-broken world. That's why our hearts ought to be stirred as we think about the nations. And thousands of people groups 
in the world who do not have a Bible in their own language have never heard about the one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. And we can easily, we can easily look at the task that's set in front of us and become completely overwhelmed. I think at least one reason why they quit working on the temple for 20 years was because they were completely overwhelmed. It seemed like the task was so huge. And yet, here's the truth. The task will not be so huge in our eyes if we are seeing that we have a gigantic God. The God over all creation who has called us to this work, who has equipped us for this work, who has sent us to this work. And this God calls us not just servants, but sons. This is family business that we're a part of. And calling others into the kingdom and doing it all for the very reason they, they mentioned there at the very end of verse 17. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. And we're left with kind of a cliffhanger here. We don't know what Darius is going to say until we read chapter 6. Perhaps he's going to shut it down. Perhaps that's going to be the end, and, that, and, and they won't be able to finish the work that God had given them. There's all kinds of unanswered questions. But I want to say this to us, church. There are no ultimate unanswered questions for us. This work that we have been given of making disciples until Jesus returns, it is going to be victorious. It is going to be successful because God has already said so. He will not lose one the Father has given to him. That's what Jesus said. He will draw people from all tribes and tongues and nations unto himself so that he might fulfill that goal of seeing those people gathered around his throne in that final day, worshiping him and crying out to him. And we are called into. The only question that remains is this. Will we be faithful to the work that we've been called into? Or will we spend our lives building our own kingdoms rather than his? I'll leave you with Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, notice the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. They were left wondering at the end of chapter 5 what would be the good pleasure of King Darius. And yet ultimately, there was the pleasure of a greater king to be done. And he had already spoken. For that generation, it was rebuild the temple. That's what I sent you to do. Be about that work until it's complete. And church, let's be reminded this morning, God has given us a work to do in our generation of making disciples, of gathering living stones that will be built up into a spiritual house for the praise of God. May we be about that work until our dying breath, knowing that that is what he has called us to be and to do. That's so much of what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to live and to work for his Good pleasure. Let's bow before the Lord this morning. Father, I want to thank you this morning for the unfinished work. You have given us a mission, an assignment. 
there's still so much more to do. In our homes, raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, this is a part, a crucial part of that work. In our churches, making disciples here in our own community, reaching them with the gospel, but not just that, raising them up to love the Lord and live their lives for Him. But may it not end at the border of Breckenridge County, Father. Would you give us a worldwide vision to see how you have called us to partner with folks like the Quarter family? Making disciples on the other side of the world with a group of people that we may never meet. But we're involved in that good and unfinished work. Lord, as we are facing a task yet unfinished, may our eyes be firmly fixed upon the one who gave us the task in the first place. Father, you know us. You know it's so easy for us to become distracted and discouraged as we look to the work. So may we instead look to King Jesus who gave us this task and assignment, who has called us unto himself, who has graced us in the gospel. Father, may we ask this morning, Lord, what would you have me to do? Here I am, Lord, send me. Perhaps for some of us, Father, that'll mean going across the road to share the gospel with our neighbor this week. Perhaps for some it'll mean being reinvigorated in the work of parenting according to your word. Perhaps it will, for some it will mean wrestling with the call to be an overseas missionary. And Father, I know that that's a good wrestling, so I pray I pray that it would continue until there is submission to that call to your glory. Father, lead us in faithfulness this morning. Remind us that your work will always be based upon your word. And we walk forward by faith this day. We pray in Jesus' name.